Good evening, saints. I like that. Uh, as we started our worship this evening, Leo mentioned Advent. My family and I are um, very much over the last 15 years, we've celebrated Advent in our home, and it's a beautiful thing. And today, we lit the candle of hope. As I come to read the word, I'd love to encourage us to look for hope in the word of God. Amen? We are saints, and there is hope there. This evening, we will be reading for a minute, so bear with me, or we're going to bear together as we find hope in God's Word. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 3, 9 through chapter 4. I'm going to go up to verses 8. Amen? If you're using your pew Bible, please turn to page 143. And if you're using something electronic, tap and swipe. That should be easy enough. Romans 3, 9 through 30. And the subtitle there says, No one is righteous. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greek are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, and all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works, the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, 
of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Amen. Let us move quickly through chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, or forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he was he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Saints, here is the reading of God's word. Test, test. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can even address you that way because you have done something amazing. Something so profound and deep that we can't even use words to express it. The fact that you have sent your only son, given up your only son, that we might be forgiven. That we might be brought into your family. So I pray that you would glorify yourself, glorify Jesus Christ this afternoon as the word is proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This week I was visiting one of my <clears throat> go-to news websites and I saw two things that were lined up that couldn't be more different, that couldn't be more starkly contrasted. Halfway through the bottom of the page there was this series of breathtaking photos, the updated seven wonders of the world. You probably have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, there's apparently some updated ones. These were chosen by a vote in 2007. You would probably recognize many of these places. The Great Wall in China, the Taj Mahal in India, Christ Redeemer statue in Brazil, and so on and so forth. These are amazing engineering marvels, attracting millions of visitors every year. But right above the updated list of seven wonders of the world was the breaking news of yet other celebrities accused of sexual harassment and assault. The, the serious accusations against a man like Harvey Weinstein have sadly turned out to be just the tip of an iceberg of a problem that was much deeper and wider than anyone would like to imagine. You see men in positions of power abusing their positions of power. And not only is it tragic, 
but it's an outrage. I mean, things shouldn't be this way. How can humanity be capable of such greatness and yet such evil? How can that be? Pastor J.C. Ryle looks at humanity's contradictory condition and compares it to a broken temple. And he writes, quote, a temple in which God once dwelt, but a temple that is now in utter ruins, a temple in which a shattered window here and a doorway there and a column there still gives some faint idea of the magnificence of the original design. But a temple that from end to end has lost its glory and fallen from its high estate. This afternoon, we're going to talk about how we got here, how humanity fell into this state of utter ruin and what hope we might have. If you're new to us at Risen Hope, we're going through a series, a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. We're looking at that ancient document that outlines the Christian faith, the essentials of what we as Christians believe. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for joining us this afternoon, this evening. Uh, we trust that what you, will hear ta- what you will hear taught at Risen Hope will give you a framework, will give, will give you a, a worldview for understanding who God is, for understanding yourself, for understanding the world around you. We've looked at God the Father Almighty. We've looked at Jesus Christ our Lord. We've looked at the Holy Spirit. And then last week, the communion of saints, the church, the people of God. Everything in the creed is important. But the last three phrases, the last three sections are particularly urgent because they affect each of us, each of us personally. And the last three sections are, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. All these, these last three sections are interconnected, but we're going to spend our time this evening focusing on the forgiveness of sins. So the behavior of Harvey Weinstein and others, they prove to us that things aren't right with this world. But things weren't always like that. After the six days of creation, God looked at everything he had, he, he had made, and he said it was very good. There was nothing messed up. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they were placed in a garden paradise. They were given good gifts, marriage, kingship over creation, and liberty to eat from any tree in the garden except one. And in the Garden of Eden, there was no death or disease. There was no sexual assault. There was no brokenness. So where did evil come from? Where, where did we go from there to a temple in utter ruins? And here it's important to have the right diagnosis because if you have the wrong diagnosis, you're going to end up with the wrong treatment. There's a big difference between being diagnosed with heart disease or cancer because in one case you might need heart surgery and in the other case you might need chemotherapy. If you're getting chemo but you should have gotten heart surgery, that's going to result in bigger problems. Some people think evil is because of your environment. People are, are bad because they're in a bad environment. So the solution, of course, is to fix the environment. You fix the environment, you fix the problem. Well, the problem is that evil is a universal problem. It doesn't matter what kind of environment people end up in. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. 
you grew up in Europe or Asia, you're educated or not educated, the problem of evil is everywhere. <clears throat> Besides, it actually pushes the problem further back. It begs the question, where did bad environments come from? Other people might think, well, evil is because of a lack of education. You just get people act bad because they're not well-educated. It's pretty popular even today. People do bad things because they're poorly educated. So the solution is to get everyone well-educated and society will be a better place. Well, there's problems with that. One theologian has said, the greatest intellects are often the greatest sinners, Satan being the greatest of all. Weinstein's problem wasn't his lack of education. He was a smart guy. There has to be another cause. So we go back to that garden paradise in Eden and see what happened. God gave Adam and Eve a test of pure obedience. They were forbidden to eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No explanation was given. They were simply told to trust God at his word and live by faith. And they were given the promise of life. If they could, on the condition of perfect obedience, they would be given life. So if they obeyed perfectly for a set amount of time, they would be given a reward. They would be given access to the tree of life. And if they did that, they would go from a state of innocency to a state of permanent righteousness, a state where they would never fall, never disobey. They would go from probation to perfection. The flip side of that promise is the, was the threat of death. Right? If they disobeyed, they would lose their privileged status and plunge themselves and all their future generations into sin and destruction. Well, church, you know how, you know what goes down. Adam and Eve, they took from the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed God and they, they plunged themselves, the whole human race, straight into sin with three disastrous results. Adam and Eve became guilty. They entered a state of condemnation by violating God's law. They became corrupted. They became infected with something they had never had before, evil desires, sinful nature. And they became alienated, separated from God and each other. And when sin entered the picture, you had guilt, corruption, alienation. All three of these things would converge into one place, and that's death. That means humanity, all, each one of us, no matter who you are, where you're from, we're destined for one place, disintegration. We came from dust and we'll return to dust. But it wasn't supposed to be like that. The reason death feels so unnatural whenever it happens, maybe to a friend or to a loved one, is that it is unnatural. It was never part of God's good design for his creation. And unfortunately, Adam's guilt and corruption and his alienation have been passed on to us, all future generations of human beings. So we, each of us come into this world with a sin nature, and the theologians call this original sin, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice that phrase at the end, because all sinned. Now, I don't know how old you guys are, but 
pretty sure you weren't in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve partook the forbidden fruit. Okay? You weren't there when Adam and Eve fell, but we fell in Adam. The scriptures say by one man's disobedience, the many, all of us, were made sinners because Adam was our representative. He acted on the behalf of the entire human race. And this idea of original sin is actually taught all throughout the scripture, that the fact that because Adam sinned, all of us are now infected with sin the moment we're born. We're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We were brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51, 5. Another way to think about it is if the source is polluted, everything downstream is also polluted. Job 14, 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. You can't bring something clean out of something that's unclean. You can't bring something that's going to be sinless out of a source that's sinful. So that means every, human, ordin- every ordinary human being that has been born since Adam is unclean because our ancestor Adam is unclean and sinful. So with that background in view, let's dive into our scripture passage this afternoon. Look, if you don't have your Bibles still open, please turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Look at 9 through 12 here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul establishes the fact that Jew and Greek, all peoples, tribes, language, and nations are all under the curse and condemnation of sin. There's none righteous, not one. No one seeks after God. No one does what is good, not even one. Sin is this universal condition. It's not just Harvey Weinstein's conditions. It's actually all of our condition. The scary thing is that the same sin that's in Weinstein is actually the same sin that's in every one of us. We all have the disease that we inherited from Adam. We all have this moral and spiritual blindness, lostness, and deadness that Isaiah 59, 9 and 10 describe this way. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. And Paul goes on in verses uh, 13 and 14 of Romans 3 to go into specifics of what this looks like. How is this disease of sin worked out in the lives of human beings? He, He looks at the sins of speech. Let's look at 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. One study says that adults, on average, use 16,000 words per day. Maybe some of you use more, 
Some of you use less. We might think that talk is cheap, but nothing goes unnoticed before God. On the day of judgment, we have to give an account. Think about this. An account for every careless word we speak. And that includes that gossip or slander that at the time might feel so good to pass along. It includes those outbursts of anger, which again, at the time, feels so good to let out of our system. But what the scripture says is that is an open grave, that the venom of asps. An asp is a kind of snake, so I, I believe it's a not-so-subtle hint at the serpent, which means that the sins of the tongue are nothing short of satanic and hellish. James 3.6 says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Many of us might not give the sins of speech a second thought, but they're serious in the eyes of God. But it's not just sins of speech. As we go on to verses 15 through 17, Paul talks about sins of violence, starting with 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. You might be thinking, well, I haven't shed any blood. I haven't killed anybody. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, whoever, yes, you know, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but also whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says, you fool, or today's language, you idiot, will be liable to the hell of fire. So we see sins of speech, sins of violence. It, give, it gives this comprehensive picture from, from head to toe, from mouth to foot, of how we as human beings are corrupted by sin. And corrupted. And this, be, this is beyond stage four terminal cancer. This is beyond sick with sin. This is, as the scriptures say, dead in sin. And so we look at a verse like, so we go on to verse 18, which says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's a pretty good summary of how this current secular godless age postures itself towards God. This, this, this age could, couldn't think of anyone more irrelevant than God. Even though God is everywhere, God is actually nowhere. This culture, and, and, and we ourselves in our natural sinful state, we cut out God. We ignore God. We eliminate God. There's no fear of God, no respect of God. And the scripture is clear that every part of our bodies, every part of who we are, is infected by sin. Theologians use this term, total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean we're as evil as we could be. There's unbelievers who build hospitals, and building a hospital is better than flying airplanes into buildings. But total depravity means that our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength doesn't love the Lord our God, doesn't love the Lord and his commandments, but is actually stained with sin. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
So we as human beings, in our fallen state, we are born with original sin. We're born with Adam's guilt, his condemnation, his alienation. We have our own personal sin that we bring to the table as a result. And we are also slaves to sin. J.I. Packer compares this whole idea of trying to avoid sin like going through a moral minefield. The harder you try, the more often than not you notice that you've stepped where you shouldn't and your mora- the morality you thought you had has been blown to bits. We're not sinners because, we're, because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's a huge difference. S- being a slave to sin means we, we can't help it. One of my seminary professors put it this way. He said, sin is not what we do but who we are. Sin is not what we do, but who we are. It's in our DNA. It's who we are as fallen human beings corrupted with sin in Adam. Some of you might be thinking, well, can God hold us responsible because, I mean, we're born with this sinful nature. To sin is human, right? Let's look on to verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law shows us God's standard of holiness. It is the standard by which each of us will be judged one day when we meet our creator. And what the law does is that it silences us. Every mouth is stopped and we are all held accountable so that on that final day of judgment, there won't be any excuses. We won't have any defense. The law will demonstrate where we have fallen short of God and his perfect holiness. The Jewish people were given the law, the Ten Commandments by Moses, on Mount Sinai. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile, the work of the law is actually written on your heart. It's written on our heart. So it means we don't need the Ten Commandments to to tell us that it's wrong to lie or to steal or kill. We know those things because God has put it on our hearts. So in both cases, whether Jew or Gentile, the law given explicitly or the law written on our hearts, the law has been violated. And when the law is violated, guilt is accumulated. Scripture gives a very simple definition for what sin is. 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. So whenever God's law is broken, whenever it's violated, sin happens. If you want something a little more fleshed out, Pastor J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Sin is doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law in two different ways. Number one, doing what we shouldn't. Well, God says you shall not steal and we steal. Or number two, not doing what we should. You see, it's not good enough to stop stealing. That doesn't give you a free pass because that makes you no better than the Levite or the priest who 
in the parable of the Good Samaritan who simply crosses by on the other side when he sees that traveler who was beaten up. We're commanded to love our neighbor. We're commanded to be rich towards God, to, to be generous, to be willing to share. Failure in that area is also sin. Which means as we look at the law, as we look at the perfection of God's moral holiness, we see that the law can't save us. The law simply shows that we're guilty. It's through the law comes knowledge of sin. I want to pause pause here uh, to point out an important application in the area of evangelism. The Bible makes it clear what the Lord uses to quote-unquote, turn on the lights so others can see their sin and see that they they need a Savior. And that's the law, the moral law of God. Most people out there, they think they're a good person. They think if there's a heaven, they're going to make it there. And they have no idea how wrong they are. And that's where we use the law gently and graciously as a mirror to show people their true condition, that they're not as good as they think they are. So when I'm evangelizing with someone and I, you know, they, they think they're pretty good, they think they're going to heaven, I, I, I take the time to walk them through some of, the, some of the commandments. I ask them, so how many lies do you think you've spoken in your lifetime? What would that make you? Or have you ever stolen anything? Or have you always honored your father and mother? Have you always loved God more than anything and everything? J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Let us expound and beat out the Ten Commandments and show the length and breadth and depth and height of their requirements. Men will never come to Jesus and stay with Jesus and live for Jesus unless they really know why they, they, are, why they are to come and what is their need they don't see their need, they won't desire the cure. They don't see that they're sinful, they won't see their need for a savior. And the law also does one other thing. It shows that punishment is actually reasonable. See, it's not helpful or wise or advisable to simply tell someone, hey, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. (laughs) Don't advise that. However, if You're evangelizing someone and they begin to see that they've violated God's law, that they've broken his commandments. They see that, hey, you know what? I've spoken over the course of my lifetime. I've spoken hundreds of lies. Oh, and yes, that would make me a liar. And I've seen that I'm, I'm willing to admit that I've stolen something and that makes me a thief. Then when you explain to them, you know what God's word says, all liars have their part in the lake of fire. No thief can inherit God's kingdom. Then punishment seems reasonable. That's why God gave us the law. And the law shows us that sin can and must be punished. The wages of sin is death. The first two chapters of Romans talks about the wrath of God revealed from heaven. The wrath of God... You know, you shouldn't picture, when you hear that term, the wrath of God, don't, don't picture this uncontrolled, fly-off-the-handle rage. The wrath of God is God's careful and settled opposition to all that's evil, all that tears down his creation, all that has brought 
the creation into this, the state of ruins that it is. That means God hates sexual abuse. God hates the things that Harvey Weinstein and others have done. He, he hates it because it's evil. He will judge it. He must punish it because he's good. He's holy. He's just. And God's pattern has always been to, to deal with sin. He's punished sin before, and he will punish sin again. So when Adam sinned one time, he was cast out of the garden. When Israel sinned, he was cast out of the promised land. And Revelation 20 reminds us that the second death is the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's cast into the lake of fire, the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. But thank God, the book of Romans doesn't end with verse 20. Thank God that the book of Romans doesn't end there. If it did, all of us, each of us, born with original sin, with, with, with guilt, corruption, and alienation, we would be destined for that eternal destruction as well. But praise God that there is a solution to sin. Look at verse 21, verse 22. But now... But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Two simple words, powerful words, but now, but now. Church, friends, whether you're part of our church family or not. There is hope. There is good news. That there is, and the good news is that there is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who would believe. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem all of us who were condemned by the law. Jesus Christ, who had no original sin, who had no personal sin, who was never a slave to sin, he stepped in and offered us his perfect righteousness for our great need. And his righteousness is now freely available for all who would receive it by faith. Faith is simply the hand that receives Christ and all of his blessings. Faith includes knowledge, right? You can't believe in something that you don't really know. You have to know your need. You have to know what Christ has done to meet your need. But it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just knowledge. It's a conviction. It's a trust. It's a receiving and resting upon Christ and his work for our salvation. John Calvin says, for those who are born again by the Holy Spirit, by the living God, the Holy Spirit gives us assurance that despite all of our sins, Christ and his benefits belong to us. So it's not this general belief that Jesus Christ died for sin, which is true, it's a, but it, it goes more than that. It's deeper than that. It's a conviction that Christ died for my sin. It's not just this general belief that Jesus Christ is a Savior, which he is. It's a conviction that he is my Savior. And that faith in Jesus Christ always comes with repentance. If faith is turning to Jesus Christ, repentance is turning away from sin. If, if a plane's going down, if a plane is going to crash, you can hang on to your seat or you can hang on to the parachute. 
You can't hang on to both. You can hang on to sin or you can hang on to Christ. There might be plenty of reasons you want to hang on to your seat. It's comfortable. You're not quite sure about the parachute. But if you hang on to your sin, if you hang on to your seat, it's going to lead you straight to your destruction. But if you hang on to Christ, if you hang on to that parachute, it will save your life. And that's what true repentance is. Amen. True repentance and faith is giving up sin so that you can have Jesus Christ. Verse 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is the legal declaration of not guilty. Paul teaches teaches us that we are justified by his grace as a gift. That's why justification by works is a deadly error. Sadly, the official Roman Catholic Church teaches a justification by works, that we're not that it, they teach that you're not actually justified until you're actually righteous. What they mean is that you actually have to be righteous, have to be acceptable before God before he will consider you righteous and acceptable. But as we've seen this evening, this afternoon, there's nothing in us that's good. There's nothing in us that's righteous or acceptable. No one is good, not even one. We as, Pro- we as Protestants hold fast to what is clearly taught in Scripture, that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Let's skip ahead to chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Romans 4, 3 through 5. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's look at verse 5 again. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Right? It's justifies the ungodly, not justifies the godly, those who are acceptable, those who have achieved a level of righteousness. It's God justifies the ungodly because his faith is counted as righteousness. So justification, when God brings down the gavel and says not guilty, it's because all of our sins, past, present, future, have been wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Been wiped away, done away with. And this is no legal fiction, but it's a legal reality grounded in the work of Christ and what he did to put away our sin. And Paul highlights two aspects of Christ's work that made this possible. Let's go back to chapter 324. A couple verses. Chapter 324. The redemption in Christ Jesus. Redemption is the price paid for freedom. Jesus Christ gave up his ransom for many, gave up his life as a ransom for many. 
We were ransomed from sin, from death, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. The redemption that we enjoy by faith, that we have received as a free gift of faith, free to us, but it costs God his only son. Years ago, I heard this uh, analogy from a, uh, from a street evangelist, and I still use it to this day to explain the gospel. Imagine you're standing in a court of law. You're guilty of a serious crime, and you have no way to pay. The fine is a million dollars. You've got no way to pay, so you're being led off to prison for a long time. As you're being led off, somebody walks in the courtroom and says, hey, I know this guy. I love this guy. And he pulls out a check for a million bucks hands it to the judge, what happens then? Well, you're free to go. You're free to go. And that's what God did for you and for me. We broke God's law, but Jesus Christ paid our fine with his life's blood. He died on the cross and paid our fine, paid in full. The redemption in Christ Jesus. The other aspect that Paul highlights is the propitiation by his blood. Paul's very intentional when he uses this Greek word that we translate propitiation. He could have used the word sacrifice. And some translations use use the word sacrifice, and that's fine. But he didn't. Paul wants to bring more into the picture. Not just the sacrifice of Christ, but the intended and accomplished result. Paul uses his word propitiation. It's actually used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The the word propitiation is the Greek word for the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, right? You know the Ark of the Covenant, right? In the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, the propitiation is that lid. In Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest enters, enters into the Holy of Holies once a year, where the Ark of the Covenant is, to sprinkle blood on that lid, on that propitiation, to cleanse the people from their sin. And there's actually multiple sacrifices that are done. There's a sacrifice to cleanse the place, the Holy of Holies, and there's sacrifice to cleanse the people. And the purpose is to create a holy place and a holy people. The result, through the sacrifice and the sprinkled blood, God's anger towards Israel because of her sins would be turned away. Jesus is that day of atonement. You see, it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sin. But the sacrifice of Jesus is to sprinkle blood with true power that has true cleansing power to remove sin. So that's why the old covenant has to give way to the new covenant. Christ is now the center, the focal point of God's atoning work. In his propitiation, in his blood sacrifice, the result is that God's wrath against us because of our sin is turned away. And you think about it. The wrath of God that's revealed from heaven, Romans chapter 1, is now the wrath of God propitiated. The wrath of God turned away in Romans chapter 3. The wrath that is due to us that we deserve because of the ways that we have broken God's law through our thoughts, words, and deeds, the ways that we 
fallen short of God's holiness and his standards, the things that we should have done but haven't, the things that we haven't done that we should, all the wrath has been turned away. Amen. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet we are justified, declared not guilty by his grace as a gift on the basis of what Christ has done, the redemption by his blood, the propitiation by his blood. And on that basis, God can forgive you of your sins, all of your sins, on that basis. Everything that sin has destroyed in this creation, everything that sin has ruined is now restored through faith in Jesus Christ. So that means your guilt is taken away because you are justified. It means your corruption is taken away because you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That means your alienation is taken away because you have been brought near as heirs and co-heirs adopted into the family of God. Some of us might be wondering, well, if, if it's free, if it's all grace, if it's all faith, <clears throat> where's the motivation for holiness? Well, can we just now like live however we want? Well, law and grace are actually tightly interconnected. St. Augustine writes, the law was given in order that we might seek after grace. Grace was given in order that we might fulfill the law. Did you catch that? The law, one of its main purposes is to, to, to show us our sin, our guilt, driving us to Christ, showing us our need for the grace of the gospel. But grace is now given to us so that we could fulfill the law, so that we could live a holy life, so that we could be like Christ, not in our own power, but by the power of the Spirit. And that's where our understanding of our union with Christ is so central to our understanding of our salvation. See, all the benefits of of our salvation, justification, sanctification, adoption, they all come because of our benefactor, Jesus Christ. Because you have the benefactor, you have all the benefits. And this provides the foundation for why and how we live holy lives. So we have redemption, we have propitiation because of our high priest, but if he is our high priest, that means he is also our king and our prophet. Because you can't divide Christ into little pieces. You can't divide him into three separate Christs. <clears throat> because it's impossible to have Christ as a high priest without also having him as a prophet who instructs you, who teaches you, as well as a king who rules over you. You either have all of Christ or you have none of Christ. You can't have a partial Christ. Scripture doesn't give us an option for that. You either have all the benefits because you're united to the benefactor or you have none of the benefits. Puritan pastor Joseph Aileen warns us of the dangers of being deceived by picking and choosing different parts of Christ. The unsound convert takes Christ by halves. He is all for the salvation of Christ, but he is not for sanctification. He is all for the privileges, but, not, but does not take hold of the person of Christ. This is an error in the foundation. Whoever loves life, let him beware here. They will not have him as God offers to be 
a leader and savior, Acts 5.31. They divide what God has joined, the king and the priest. They would have their lives saved but still have their lusts. The sound convert, however, takes a whole Christ and takes him for all intents and purposes, without exceptions, without limitations, without reserve. He is willing to have Christ upon any terms. He is willing to have the dominion of Christ as well as deliverance by Christ. And church, I share that quote not to bring fear or condemnation because I know that, Risen Hope, you love Christ. You desire a whole Christ. You want all of Christ. But I believe a quote like this encourages us to continue a lifelong pursuit of loving and pursuing all of who Jesus is. And I hope that that quote does that for you in your soul because our temptation is to stray from that, is to say, oh, I like this part of Christ. Oh, I don't like this part of Christ. And I hope that that quote encourages us on the straight and narrow path. And so as we bring things to a close here, uh, if you're not a believer, we hope that you always feel welcome to join our church family. We hope that you've gotten a better glimpse of the Savior we love so much and you understand a little bit more about why we love him so much. I hope you begin to see why we've taken the time to understand our sin because the more we understand our sin, the more we understand what our Savior has done to put away our sin. The more we understand and appreciate the great love that our Savior had, what cost, what length he went to to secure our forgiveness. And we as Risen Hope, we as Christians, we, we, we don't hide our sin. We don't pretend that we're perfect. We as Christians, we're actually in the truth of the gospel, given the full freedom to own up to our sin, to admit it, to be transparent with it because our Savior has paid for it. He has done away with it. We don't have anything to fear or anything to hide. But if you're not a believer, yet the question still remains, what will you do with your sin? How, what will you do with your guilt, your corruption, your alienation? In love, God has provided a way for all of your sin to be forgiven forever. One theologian said that the cross was God doing his very best for man, not man doing his best for God. And if you're willing to humble yourself, to acknowledge that you, that you need a Savior, that you need grace, then, then, then salvation is so close for you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You can come to the Savior even now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Like the tax collector of Luke chapter 18, simply humble yourself before God. Simply cry out to the Lord, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when you do that, God will hear your prayers. He will hear the cry of your heart, and he will extend you mercy, forgiving all of your sins and giving you eternal life because of what Christ has done. Amen. Amen.